let's ask God to help us with his word again. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that as we hear what you have committed yourself to do and as we see what you have already done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we may be people who through the instruction of your word have hope and live with that hope, godly lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine it's early morning before your workday for your master starts and you're gathering with a small group of your fellow Judean deportees on the bank of the Euphrates, just outside the wall of the great city of Babylon, the prosperous, proud, secure city of Babylon who has brought your own nation, Judah, into subjection to it. You are there to listen to a visitor from your homeland, Sariah, who has come to Babylon as part of the government delegation of King Zedekiah in the fourth year of his reign. The king, the Babylonians, installed on the throne of David in Jerusalem when they punished the previous king's rebellion. Sarai standing on the bank to read from a scroll given to him by the prophet Jeremiah. And he reads for you what is now chapters 50 and 51 of our book of Jeremiah. And he introduces his reading by saying, Lord, you have threatened to cut off this place so that no one will live in it, people or animals. Indeed, it will remain desolate forever. And when he is finished, he ties a scroll, a stone to that scroll (coughs) and throws it into the Euphrates and says, in the same way, Babylon will sink and never rise again because of the disaster I'm bringing on her. They will grow weary. Now, of course, that would be an unusual way to start the day. Uh, But what have you, living amongst your conquerors, exiled as you are in Babylon, heard in Jeremiah's scroll? Well, you've heard, as we've heard this morning, a word of judgment and deliverance. Judgment on Babylon and deliverance and restoration of God's oppressed people, a word of hope graciously given. You've heard a very bold, even unlikely word, for Babylon is at the height of its power. And these are words which challenge the appearance of things, the dominant narrative of the society you're living amongst, that Babylon will always succeed. You've heard words you will need to cling to, for things will get worse. For Judah and her people, in seven years' time, Jerusalem will be destroyed, the temple burnt, and Judah will be no more. And you've heard words that in their enduring beyond the prophesied destruction of Jerusalem will continue to give hope throughout the 70 years of your exile. Words that, as we will see, promise not just the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire that ruled in the Middle East until 539 BC, but the end of all proud resistance to God which the Babylon these words speak of symbolises. And so these words that you've heard are words that can speak hope to every generation of God's people, those who believe his word, as they live in a world dominated by those whose trust is in themselves and their idols, who do not recognise and so oppose the rule of the living God, a world in which God's people 
can be dispossessed and oppressed, feel often like they are the losers, the outsiders, and always live as exiles. You would have heard then words which can give hope to us today and words which in giving hope help every generation of believers help us to know how to live in this world as we await the fulfilment of what God has promised. So let's look at these words to see what is promised here. This is the word the Lord spoke about Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, through the prophet Jeremiah. Left out the first verse. Okay, so that these have spoken about Babylon. Babylon has had a big presence in the book of Jeremiah, hasn't it, up to this time? In the book up to this point, it's been revealed as the foe from the north that Jeremiah spoke about in chapter 1, the foe that would visit God's judgment on Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has even been spoken of as God's servant in bringing the Lord's judgment on all nations. And remembering that Jeremiah is not arranged in chronological order, in the chapters before these prophecies, chapters 37 to 39, you would have read of the Babylonian sacking and burning Jerusalem and plundering the Lord's temple, just as we have read of the deportation of a remnant of people before that destruction to Babylon. And the end of the instruction in chapter 29, Jeremiah gave them about living in this city, the people to whom chapters 50 to 51 are also addressed. So Babylon's been the instrument of the Lord's judgment on his apostate people, people who had abandoned worshipping him and worshipped idols, who'd been breaking his commandments and oppressing each other in their greed and immorality. But Babylon did not recognise the Lord as the source of their success. They were giving the credit to themselves and their idols. And in what Babylon did, they weren't acting to please the Lord, but to please themselves in the violence they visited on others. And so now the exiles hear the fate of Babylon. The Lord will make a complete end of Babylon. A nation from the north will attack her. It will make her land desolate. No one will be living in it. In fact, the totality of this destruction is emphasised in this prophecy. And there are a lot of verses, but just to give you the feel of the prophecy. Because of the Lord's wrath, she will not be inhabited. She'll become a desolation, every bit of her. Oh, it will never again be inhabited or lived in through all generations. Just as God demolished Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbouring towns, this is the Lord's declaration, so no one will live there. No human being will stay in it temporarily. And 51, the earth quakes and trembles because the Lord's intentions against Babylon stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. And horrifying as it is, We are told it will be a just end, as God does to Babylon what she has done to others. This is the Lord's vengeance. Take your vengeance on her as she has done. Do the same to her. 
Repay her according to her deeds, just as she has done. Do the same to her, for she has acted arrogantly against the Lord. Oh, a destroyer is coming. Leave Babylon, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will pay her what she deserves. For the Lord is a God of retribution. He will certainly repay. You see, the Lord is determined to deal with Babylon according to her works. This is just judgment. For her works are characterized by violence, greed and pride. Babylon's conquests have been marked with violence. She's spoken about as the hammer of the whole earth, smashing others. Oh, the slain of the whole earth fell because of Babylon. All and, and she is without compassion. You read and you'll see she exalts in the humiliation of Judah and then she refuses to let the captives go home. They hold them fast. And she has enriched herself by the plundering of the nations and the enslavement of others. She is arrogant and proud. I am against you, arrogant one. And in her arrogance, she has set herself against the Lord. She sinned against the Lord. She has pitted herself against the Lord. Babylon's confidence was in herself and her resources, her officials, sages, diviners, her warriors and military technology, the wealth that allowed her to hire mercenaries, her natural defences in the waters that surrounded her walls. Her confidence was in herself, her technology, her bureaucracy, her learning. Oh, yes, and in her idols, in whose name she had swallowed up the nations. Violence without compassion, greed and idolatrous pride characterise the rule of Babylon. And the Lord promises to humble her and her worthless idols, to remove everything in which she placed her confidence. A sword is against them and to bring her end, an end which is pictured as more than the end of this Neo-Babylonian empire amongst the exiles, uh, amongst which the exiles lived. You see, the description of Babylon and its judgment is given in language that transcends the fall of the 6th century Babylonian empire. And we can hear that in the prophecy. We Hear that in the description of Babylon's role. She was the hammer of the whole earth, the gold cup that makes the whole earth drunk, that makes the nations mad. And she devastates the whole earth. You devastate the whole earth. Babylon is also spoken of, as you've heard, as the cause of all the violence on earth, the slain of the whole earth fell because of Babylon. And we see her symbolic status in the description of her pretensions. Babylon's name, in fact, means in the old Akkadian language, the gate of God. And she thinks of herself as one who can ascend to the heavens, secure herself not only against her earthly but her heavenly foes. She's spoken of 5141 as the praise of the whole earth. That's the way she thinks of herself. And her, <coughs> her fall has consequences for the whole earth. All the nations 
will hear of her fall. A cry will be heard amongst all the nations and her judgment reaches to the skies, reaches as far as the clouds. And that judgment, we are told, will bring rest to the earth, the whole earth, heaven and earth and everything in them will shout for joy over Babylon's fall. Babylon's destruction brings hope and joy to creation, heaven and earth. The Babylonian Empire that destroyed Jerusalem and oppressed its people becomes a symbol in Jeremiah of all that arrogantly opposes God, excludes God from his creation and oppresses his people and creation by its violence. And this is a role for which it's well suited by its character and its history in the Bible, for Babylon is Babel. Now, we first meet Babel in our Bibles in chapter 11 of Genesis, the story of the Tower of Babel. And Babel is the name that's continued to be used for Babylon in our Hebrew Bibles. We, we don't get that reading the English. Everywhere the we, we use the term Babylon, the Greek name for the city, but everywhere the English reads Babylon, Hebrew reads Babel. Babylon is Babel. And the story of Babel is the corporate climax in Genesis 3 to 11 of the outworking of Adam's sin. There the people said, come, let's build ourselves a city in a tower with its top in the skies, in the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. See, having rejected the rule of the Creator in rejecting his word as Adam did, having embraced autonomy, the right to decide for themselves what is good and evil, right and wrong without reference to their Creator, humanity now seeks to give themselves a name, that is, an identity independent of their Creator, only by reference to themselves and their achievements, to keep God entirely out of the world. They want to be well, they want to decide who they will be, not who the Lord made them to be and not in relationship to him. And that tower they seek to build is actually seeking to take heaven on their terms, to displace God not just from his rule of earth but of heaven, of all creation. You see, Babel is the epitome of collective human pride and ambition of a determination to live and rule the world without God. And the pride and ambition of Babel is well embodied for a moment in time in the Babylonian empire of Nebuchadnezzar, which destroyed the temple of God, in a sense visibly displaced God from his throne in the world. And Babel, that pride and ambition is embodied in every claim to absolute human sovereignty over the earth, every attempt to supplant the place of the living God in his creation, whether that's, well, the pretensions of Rome and its emperor or the pretensions of the secular humanist who says that humanity is all there is and humanity rules. That is Babel. And Babylon continues to be the sign of that pride, as you heard right to the end in the book of Revelation. That Babylon, like this, is proud and complacent, 
confident in herself to keep her secure, saying in her heart, I sit as a queen. I'm not a widow. I will never see grief. I can actually always keep myself secure and prosperous. And she's characterised in Revelation as dominating the world, seducing the nations by her wealth, luxury and sensuality, a wealth gained by violence, trading, it says, in the lives of people, slaves. And she's pictured as opposed to God and oppressing his people and her neighbours. In her was found the blood of prophets and saints and like Babylon, of all those slaughtered on the earth. When you seek to be God, you have to fight to establish your reign over all those who else who seek to be God. The promised judgment of Babylon we read of in Jeremiah 50 to 51 does not just speak of the end of the empire of Nebuchadnezzar nor the destruction of the city of Babylon on the Euphrates. It anticipates and looks forward to the day when the Lord acts to judge all human pride that shows itself in denying God and exercising violent domination over others. <laughs> it shows itself in all the greed that enriches itself by oppressing others, all the rejection of the truth of God for idolatry, a rejection that manifests itself over and over again in the persecution of God's people. Jeremiah tells us, the Lord tells us in Jeremiah that he will make a full end and at the same time he will deliver his people, bringing about a great reversal. In those days and at that time, this is the Lord's declaration, the Israelites and Judeans will come together weeping as they come and they will seek the Lord their God. They will ask about Zion turning their faces to this road. They will come and join themselves to the Lord in a permanent covenant that will never be forgotten. In those days and at that time, Jeremiah speaks of an indefinite future but a time that will be the same time when God acts in judgment. At that time, he will also act to deliver his people, to gather them to himself in the land he has given them. I will return Israel to his grazing land, and he will feed on Carmel and Bashan. He will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and at that time, this is the Lord's declaration, one will search for Israel's iniquity, but there will be none. And for Judah's sins, but they will not be found, for I will forgive those I leave as a remnant. Now this speaks of the return of those Jewish exiles to Judah at the end of the 70 years Jeremiah had already prophesied, when the Neo-Babylonian Empire will be destroyed by the Persians. But it speaks of more. Jeremiah is prophesying something more, a greater deliverance of God's people. You see, the language of deliverance used in Jeremiah 51 is the language of the deliverance promised in Jeremiah 31. Watch, I'm going to bring them from the northern land. I will gather them from the remote regions of the earth. The blind and the lame will be with them, along with those who are pregnant and those about to give birth. They will return here as a great assembly. They will come weeping. But I will bring them back with consolation. I will lead them to what is filled with water by a smooth way where they will not stumble. For I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn. 
nations, hear the word of the Lord and tell it among the far-off coasts and islands. Say, the one who scattered Israel will gather him. He will watch over him as a shepherd guards his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the power of one stronger than he. We hear Jeremiah 31, don't we, in Jeremiah 50. Uh, the Lord bringing his people back, them coming weeping, and of the way the Lord has ransomed his people from the power of one stronger than them. And the permanent covenant, which was spoken of in verse 5, is the covenant of Jeremiah 31, the new covenant in which the sins of God's people will be forgiven, the covenant called permanent in Jeremiah 32, Permanent because God will have forgiven all their sin and given them a new heart to keep his law, the covenant brought into being by our Lord Jesus' death. Jeremiah 50 to 51 speaks of the deliverance of the end when the Lord will bring eternal security and peace to his people, bring them to live forever in his presence. For in this permanent covenant based on forgiveness of all their sins, there will never be a reason why they should be driven from their inheritance from God's presence. And with the judgment of Babylon, there will never be a power to threaten them. The judgment of this Babylon will usher in the final deliverance of the Lord's people, a deliverance pictured in Revelation 19 as the joyous wedding feast of the Lamb, that joining of the Lord to his people in unending joy and peace. Jeremiah 50 to 51 gives to God's exiled and oppressed people in every age, gives to us a glorious hope of justice and deliverance, a hope that the Lord commits himself to fulfil. For what is promised in these chapters is a great work of God's sovereignty and of his grace. See, the prophecy makes it clear that this is the deliverance God will work. The voice announces in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance for his temple. Oh, chapter 50, verse 33, Israelites and Judeans alike have been oppressed. All their captors hold them fast. They refuse to release them. Their redeemer is strong. The Lord of armies is his name. He will fervently champion their cause so that he might bring rest to the earth but turmoil to those who live in Babylon. It is the Lord who will free his people and he will do it as effortlessly as he thwarted the rebellion of Babel by coming down and confusing their language. Effortlessly because he is the creator. No creature, let alone man, made gods can rival his power. He made the earth by his power, established the world by his wisdom, spread out the heavens by his understanding. But the idols, verse 18, they are worthless, a work to be mocked, and those who worship them, stupid and ignorant. But Jacob's portion, well, he's the Lord who formed all things. No one resists his will. And he is the ruler of all, the ruler of history. He will summon the nations to do his bidding, use their own lust for domination to destroy the arrogant dominator of the earth. I'll soon stir up and bring against Babylon 
an assembly of great nations from the north country. The Lord has roused the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his plan is aimed at Babylon to destroy her. And this great deliverance is all of grace. The Lord acts knowing that the land is full of guilt. That Israel and Judah have sinned. And their deliverance, as you've heard, their deliverance in return is as a forgiven people. It's not as a people who have now earned the Lord's intervention by their righteousness. They come as forgiven. God's people, read chapters 50 to 51, contribute nothing to this great salvation. All they are meant to do is heed the Lord's call to flee from Babylon and return with weeping to the Lord. That is to repent and believe, to trust their deliverer and act on his call. Jeremiah, you see, promises a deliverance worked for us, not by us. A deliverance to be received as a gift of grace for its security is not in our perfection but in our forgiveness. We receive it and yes, like Daniel, we can pray for the Lord to bring it but we do not work it. It is a gift of the sovereign almighty God to his people in his faithfulness to his promises. Jeremiah 50 to 51 is a prophecy of great hope given at a time when things looked so bleak, a wonderful hope in its content, the vanquishing of pride and violence from the whole earth and and a promise of eternal salvation, a permanent covenant which will give peace with God in his presence forever. It is a surprising hope, a hope in God, a hope against all appearance, but it is a sure and confident hope because it's the hope in its hope in the almighty creator the god who has committed himself to his people confident hope because it is hope given by the almighty creator the one the only one who knows the future because he creates it he is the one who brings it to pass what a contrast this hope is with human hopes See, when all we have is ourselves and trust in ourselves, all we're left is is kind of oscillating between a desire for an unreal utopia, unreal because it cannot deal with human sin, or a despairing future, despairing because we're confronted not only with our limitations, but with that same sinfulness and our capacity to bring evil out of good constantly. But there is no darkness in this future Jeremiah speaks of. It's a complete vanquishing of evil, the complete rescue of God's people, the humble who will trust him through the grace and might of the living God. And this is sure hope for us. See, how how can we know? It's written all those years. How can we know? If, If you're living without hope, as you may be, It's an important question to know that this is a sure hope. If you're finding it costly to keep following the Lord Jesus in a self-confident culture that sees no need for God and rejects the rule of his son Jesus, well, it's also an important question, isn't it? But we can be confident. History gives us confidence. 
The Neo-Babylonian Empire, the empire that reached the zenith of its power under Nebuchadnezzar, the empire that symbolised proud exclusion of God from his world, was ended by Cyrus, the ruler of the Medes and Persians in 539 BC, as Jeremiah promised. And the city of Babylon, though it continued for a time over the centuries, lost influence and people and is now desolate. You can find you can look it up on, on you know, the web. It's an archaeological site. Oh, yes, adorned with the failed attempt of Saddam Hussein to rebuild parts of the ancient city. But it is no more. But we have more reason for confidence and the fulfilment of prophecy in the destruction of Babylon. You see, the power of the oppressor of God's people has already been broken on the cross and the Lord has already secured the forgiveness of his people through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Behind the arrogant power of Babylon and its gods stands the lie and power of the devil and Christ has conquered all those evil forces who seek to hold his people in subjection. He's conquered them on the cross. That's what the gospel proclaimed, as Paul says. On the cross, the Lord Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in the cross. Oh, and the Lord Jesus has, through his death, destroyed the devil who had the power of death and freed those held in slavery by their fear of death. It's actually this victory that Revelation pictures for us when it tells us in chapter 12 that the devil, the accuser of believers, has been thrown down from heaven already. While he can afflict believers on earth, the devil can never dispossess them of heaven, of their place in the presence of the living God who's the source of life. He can never again cause them to be driven from God's presence by his accusation, his remembrance of sin, for they are forgiven. The Lord Jesus has brought to pass the new covenant. And so already God's people, believers in Jesus, are delivered in Paul's words. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us now into the kingdom of the Son he loves, for in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, even now God's saving king has been installed at God's right hand and the end of Babylon is certain for God's king, the Lord Jesus, his son, will rule the nations with a rod of iron. None can resist his rule or escape his judgment. The end spoken of in Jeremiah 50 to 51 is certain, for we are already enjoying through faith in Jesus the first instalment of what is promised in these chapters, forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit in the new covenant. And this first instalment guarantees for us the rest of what is promised, the destruction of the proud oppressors of God's people and the establishment of justice on the earth when God gathers his people to his presence. It guarantees the fall of Babylon. This confident hope is ours as believers in Jesus, no matter how it appears. 
how sure, confident those who oppose God appear to be, no matter how dominant they are at any one time in history, how wealthy and powerful, how good their self-promotion, how seductive their invitation to come and share in living a life of self-rule and self-indulgence. These promises are sure, no matter how weak and frail and poor and excluded believers in the Lord Jesus appear to be. The judgment of Babylon, of those who set themselves up against God, of those who in their pride make all others serve their luxury and comfort, of those who establish their domination of the earth by violence, of those who oppress God's people as they seek to exclude God from his world. The judgment of Babylon and the deliverance of his people, those who put their hope in God's word, in God's son, and have no hope in themselves, are certain. Believers in Jesus live with a confident hope, not just a personal hope, but a world, a creation embracing hope, a hope which is so precious in a world where many know only fear for the future or are attempted to embrace Babylon's violence to secure their own future. So precious, and a hope you will find nowhere else. You thought about that. Look at our world's hope. You die. Injustice is just left unpunished. That's the end. And the world is left to a slow and tropic death that we can all look forward to in billions of years. Or endless cycles of the same until the great conflagration. This is a unique hope. And having a sure hope, believers in Jesus, should be people who live with a confident hope in God to fulfil his promises no matter how it appears. People who are taught by that hope how to live in this world, how to live as the as exiles in Babylon. You see... There were two messages sent to the exiles in the fourth year of Zedekiah in the book of Jeremiah. We looked at the first when we looked at chapter 29, where the exiles were surprisingly instructed to pursue the well-being of Babylon, right? And to pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive, where they are instructed to be good citizens and good neighbours. But there's always a danger (coughs) if in Babylon that's the only message you hear. It's the danger of not just seeking the welfare of those you live amongst, but identifying Babylon, the place where human power and wisdom rules without thought for or honouring of the true and living creator, identifying Babylon as your home, the place not just to be productive but to be permanent and to cease for to long for Zion, our heavenly home. That's a real danger for Babylon's power, wealth and pleasure are seductive and Babylon can seem so enduring, so forever until it isn't. Oh, and it can be hard for us to have our head in two places in a sense, Zion and Babylon, how we live. Oh, and impossible to have your heart in two places. Jeremiah 50 to 51 helps 
us keep living as exiles, longing for our eternal home, helps us to live in but not of the world, for it tells us of Babylon's character. It unmasks what lies behind its splendour and complacency, violence without compassion, greed which takes what is others and lives off their loss and suffering, an arrogant pride that justifies its domination, a power that trades in death. A character we see all around us. It reveals its character and it tells us its end. It's sure and utter destruction by God as he gives to her what she has given to others. And he calls us to flee from Babylon even as we seek its welfare, to not share in its end by not embracing Babylon's faith in itself and its commitment to its own power and wealth. We need the perspectives of both Jeremiah 29 and Jeremiah 50 to 51 if we're going to live as God's people, Jesus' people in our world while we await the return of our Lord Jesus. You see, we need to keep the end in view to live well in the present, to live as Jesus follows, who deny themselves and take up their cross, to in the present be willing to suffer for doing what's right, to stand against collective injustice and the collective justification of oppression and greed. Oh, we need Jeremiah 50 to 51 to help us to be in the present be willing to say no to making the satisfaction of our desires primary and to instead make obeying the Lord Jesus and loving others primary. To love and to be willing to suffer because we know in the end God will rescue his people and judge those who stay in Babylon, the kingdom of self-rule and collective exclusion of God. We need Jeremiah 50 to 51, but we also need Jeremiah 29 to be committed to loving in the present, to be that good neighbour so that knowledge of Babylon's end doesn't lead us to separate ourselves from it or withdraw from it or impatiently seek the overthrow by our own violence of those who oppress us. And we need that commitment to love those we live amongst if we're going to value our hope, treasure and cling to it. For where we love, not just those around us, not just that, where we love, we will be grieved by the sin of Babylon, won't we? We'll be grieved for the impoverishment of so many by greed, think gambling or drugs. We'll be grieved by the sacrifice of so many lives in the violent quest for domination, think Ukraine, Afghanistan, Syria. We will be grieved by the blindness of complacent pride that is content to be unengaged with the suffering of others. We will be grieved and we will long for Babylon's end, but knowing its end, we will not despair. Those who heard Sariah on that riverbank were probably still perplexed and disoriented by Babylon's triumph, struggling to come to terms with what had happened, anxious about further loss in the future and tempted to abandon a faith that would keep them, the odd ones out, in their new home 
abandon it in favour of just fitting in. But God gave them a word of hope, a sure word of Babylon's end and their deliverance, a word to lighten their gloom, allay their anxiety and strengthen their resolve, a word that would keep them living as the Lord's people if believed, a word some of them and their children actually lived to see the beginning of its fulfilment. Now, you might be perplexed and disoriented by what seems the sudden ascendancy in our society of those who reject God, who are confident in themselves and determined to pursue what seems right to them and are willing to pressure believers to conform to their understanding of the world and right and wrong. You might be feeling that pressure to stop being the odd one out yourself at work or school, the odd one out who believes in a God where, where they claim he's been discredited by the triumph of human reason or displaced by the dominance of human freedom or who say, say, just belongs to the human past and not its present. You might be feeling the pressure to share Babylon's self-confident pride and indulgent sensuality. Well, today, hear Babylon's end and see Babylon's defeat already in Christ, that its doom, the doom of that pride that would exclude God and resist him, is sure, for the Lord Jesus has risen and he reigns. This is a good hope. The Lord will make a full end and at the same time bring his people to live in his presence forever where there'll be no death, no grief, and no sin that mars our lives and the lives of others. And having this good hope, persevere, persevere in what God calls his people to, in the words spoken to those feeling the pressure of that ancient Babylon, the pressure of Rome and its claims. Persevere. This calls for endurance from the saints, this great hope the keeping of God's commands and their faith in Jesus. That's what we are called to as we know Babylon's end and yet at the same time we are called to seek its welfare. We're called to persevere in keeping the commands of God and the faith of Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Uh, We pray in your mercy that we would be, as we trust the Lord Jesus, that we would be a people who know we have a hope, not just a small hope or an uncertain hope, but a big hope, a hope for the whole creation, a hope for all things being made new, a hope for the end of violence and greed, and selfish pride, a hope for the establishment of justice and righteousness on earth. And we thank you that this is a hope you secure for us, you will bring about, and you have already begun to bring about by sending your Son, our Lord Jesus, into the world. Our gracious Father, (coughs) in the face of Babylon's pressure and seduction, Help us to live as your people who trust the Lord Jesus. 
Help us to keep faith in him and live the godly life that obeys your commands. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.